0: I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Germ Lynn, a non-binary poet and musician. They're here to speak about their new book, Pressured Speech, by Bottlecap Press. You can visit the publisher's website at bottlecap.press. Germ's poetry is also featured in Rendering Unconscious the book, Rendering Unconscious Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, available from Trapar Books. Visit trapar.net, T R A P A R T.net, for details. And a few years ago, Germ and I curated. An album called Coven. Available from Highbrow Lowlife. Visit Highbrow Lowlife's Bandcamp page. highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com You can support the podcast at our Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23carl Thank you so much to all of our Patreon community. Your support is greatly appreciated. Now, all patrons at our Patreon get access to our Magic Monday posts. Every Monday, Carl and I post about our magical and creative practices. Coming up October 14th to 16th is the third Psychoanalysis, Art, and the Occult Conference Visionary Medium, Psychoanalysis, and the Magic of Cinema held at Hussitz Biograph in the center of Copenhagen. Visit psychartcult.org for details and more information. There are still a few seats available. P-S-Y-C-H-A-R-T-C-U-L-T It's so nice to have you back. I was just telling you that you were episode eight of Rendering Unconscious podcast.
1: Yep. And that was in like 2016, I want to say. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah.
0: two thousand. When did I start the podcast? I started in January of 2018. So
1: it was in
0: 2018. Wow. It was a while.
1: Yeah, it feels like (laughs) a world away. Like, I think, you know, Trump and obviously COVID, just like so much has transpired. Yeah. (laughs) And now you have a new book out. Yes, I'm pretty excited about this one. It's not quite... It's a chapbook. It's not quite a micro chap. It's kind of a little long and it's definitely not a full length collection. So I'm saying that it's a zine. Nice. Um, I love zines. I think that they're the most ecological form of publishing. I like that they go from hand to hand. There's a regionalism about them. So, um although this was published by a publisher bottle cap press um it's got a sort of zine feel to it and i didn't um i didn't include too much about myself in the the paratext like there's no author bio there's no like you know more titles by me it's just the publisher and the poems <laughs> so um I liked that too, because just lately I've been trying to kind of steer myself away from like authorship, like author with a capital a. It's still got my name on it that I wrote these, but um, it's not like branded as like um you know Lynn, the author, which so i i I honestly feel like it it sounds strange, but without the bio, without the link to like a website or something, I feel like this has just like a different life and like a different, um, just like a different um, sense of legacy to me. Like the words themselves speak and survive, not so much the, you know, the personal brand behind it. So it's a little bit different from what I've published before.
0: Very nice. And what's your process like when you're creating poems?
1: Oh my gosh. Okay. So on episode eight, I probably talked a lot about blackout poetry or like my particular erasure method. Um, and my process has evolved a lot, but they are kind of like, in my writing, there's almost like five distinct phases. I went to school for journalism. So for a while, I was publishing, you know, articles, nonfiction, mostly on um, disability and accessibility. Um, that was all published under a dead name. And and like decidedly not creative. I loved that kind of writing. I think you would know. The art of interviewing is creative, but um, yeah, in terms of, like, developing a voice, like, I feel like my voice was kind of absent from from those publications. (laughs) And then the Arasher poetry, and to an extent the Cut-Up Method, that's another distinct phase where it seemed like that was, like, all I could do. Like, to find my voice, like, was to just tap into, like, kind of the unconscious. Um, And it felt like I was doing also a lot of automatic drawing at that time. I was feeling very lost, you know. You know, Trump's reign um, came out to my parents as trans in 2019. And, yeah, and basically the whole my time in New York city leading up to coming out as trans at work to my parents doing the whole coming out moment in the biography. It just felt like a lot of, um, a lot of loss, feeling lost, um, confusion, disorientation, um, particularly about myself and my identity and my voice. So I was looking to find it and, um, That sort of, and this zine, pressured speech, it's a lot to do about voice, um, sort of the policing of one's voice, which I can get into a bit later, but also um, finding one's voice and and finding joy in the act of voicing oneself. So it's kind of like my ode to ecstatic speech, And there's, and this whole, it's a small zine, but it does span a lot of time. It spans like almost like 10 years. My oldest poem here I wrote in, um, I think like 2011. So even more than 10 years ago. And um, so there's some Arasha poetry in there because that's a big part of my story. It wasn't until I did that process that I could actually um, make some steps towards having a more authorial voice. And since I really do feel like a poetry opened the door for me. And even though I was really you know depressed and feeling lost and hopeless, it's something that I could do. And I just started thinking about what I could do. Um, And I wrote haikus for a long time because they are short and sweet. Again, something that felt very accessible to me. Poetry began to feel more accessible. And then um, I wrote some fiction as well, um, which felt like kind of the most like authorship, like... um, And, you know, but I've always identified as a poet um, so it's nice to have something compendious of my poetry from, like, 2011 to present.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's really wonderful. I love your haikus. You would post them on Instagram.
1: Yes, that is my <laughs> platform of choice for publishing haikus. And, yeah, I I like that. I've produced a lot of them. Like, it was almost like a daily practice for a while, or sometimes I'd write a couple a day. I started basically, like... I started, like, comprehending language, like, in the form of haikus. Like, someone would say something, some, like, really cool turn of phrase, and I'd, like, counting the syllables. Um, It gave me, like... I don't know why, but, like, all of my writing kind of feels like an anchor. Like, um, the erasure poetry was, like, an anchor to, like, my unconscious desires, which were coming out based on the sort of, based on what was left, what survived after the, after I took the fountain pen and um, decided to black things out. Um, there was, like, these little, like, quick automatic choices that I felt like really spoke to my true voice. Um, and haiku for me, that was basically the art of noticing, like noticing like in the world, um, things that I found to be remarkable. And, um, how do I, how do I say it? I, I, mean, I feel like there's so much that's ineffable and inexpressible but I like that haikus, there's a sort of, there's a sort of um, desire to like cut to the heart of something, which I found to be really like an anchor. Like when there was so much, you know, I think my haiku practice reached its apex, like in lockdown, um, and there was just so much confusion, lack of information, fear, anxiety, so, yeah, like, being able to to go about noticing things in the world that still felt really um, salient to me and remarkable, and then also to be able to, like, you know, easily put words behind it. Like, the form helped me, you know? Um, any form helps me, but haiku just happens to be one that I use the most and it's like I give those away freely like I've thought about publishing a book of haikus but I almost like that they're you know they're almost like ephemera in a way and um yeah it's nice not to worry about you know saving every little word for a future project like it's nice to just express yourself and then you know with a feeling of abundance it's like there will be more you know haikus there's haikus every day so um yeah I'm definitely like a hobbyist in that realm of writing and that feels so good because you know you you know like publishing is kind of like hard like it's it's hard to like not this sounds like almost like narcissistic of me but it's like i don't want this object to represent me forever like maybe no one will read it maybe more than likely it'll disappear into like obscura but um yeah i feel like there's a catharsis that comes along with like okay i finished a project and i put my whole heart and soul into it and then there's for me there's also this like This this phase of like um, maybe a little bit of anxiety or fear like, well, what if, you know, people reject this or I reject it and, you know, it's out there forever, like losing control, I guess. So, yeah, the haikus, I just don't have that like sense of control around like they don't feel like my words. They just feel like a collection
0: yeah, and I like what you said too, that it's nice to just pr- produce them and let them be kind of ephemeral because I noticed that with the cut-ups, like it used to just be for me, the cut-ups were just like what I did because I liked it. And I would go into my cut-up holes and just make cut-ups and, you know, be in the creative process. And now I've given myself like all these kind of projects, like I have a book I'm working on and this other collaboration, this other thing. And then, and then I don't do it, you know, because <laughs> so, I like to just do it to do it. I don't like to do it, you know, for an end result, you know.
1: Yeah. And that's why honestly, that's why this um this collection is so, you know, short and sweet. Like, um, I don't um I don't belabor my words. Um, the spirit of this whole book is about like uh ecstatic speech and um so none of these are kind of overwrought or workshopped. There's a sense of rawness to them um, because what I wanted to convey with this collection of poems is, I mean, it tells a somewhat biographical story about like me struggling against diagnosis, um, struggling against clinical language and wanting Um, moving towards, turning towards this um, unbridled kind of language that is within me, but has been kind of um, weirdly categorized and, like, um, almost, like, policed. Um, I... This book started with this idea... Pressured Speech is this... um, diagnostic and clinical term associated with, like, bipolar or psychosis or, like, schizophrenic manner of speech, like, um, which, you know, I I was navigating at the time when I started this, a bipolar diagnosis, and um, this person, this asshole I was dating kept telling me that my manner of speech was essentially, like, um, hysterical. And so, and he picked out this phrase called pressured speech. And he could tell, apparently, when I was manic um, because of the way I talked. And um, so, yeah, th- this just, like, stuck in my brain And I wanted to figure out like, what is the truth behind the phenomenon of pressured speech? Um, Because I'd always been somebody who kind of like self-policed my speech because I saw a speech pathologist when I was younger. I had a speech impediment. and, And just my writing, Like I said, it was an anchor, but it was also where I got to say things. I didn't always, like, express myself, you know? Like, I didn't always advocate for myself, but I wrote it down, and I worked through it, and I processed it, like, on the page. So a lot of these poems, because that's where they come from, they're, like, an extension of my voice. But um, because it's, like, that interior voice, Um, that's the, like my interior voice, I actually do have control over how that is perceived. Like, and I know that like, I'm getting a lot of, especially when I was going through the process of getting diagnosed, I was getting like a lot of language for my internal um, perception, my internal landscape. I was getting it from out there. And, um, and the sort of, the sort of trick of diagnosis is, do you use this language to help you understand yourself and understand what you're going through? Or does this feel othering and like kind of inauthentic? I feel like at different times in my process, I, um, you know, fully believed in those two polarities. Go figure. (laughs) Um, But I I decided that, like, my... The phenomenon of speech as an embodied thing, like how it feels to be effusive, to express oneself, to advocate for oneself, um, I just feel like there's a lot of magic there. Like... For myself, like as a poet, what is the difference in terms of embodiment and lived experience of, say, standing up for oneself versus um, you know, uh, you know the the kind of pressured, angry speech that would get one, you know, kind of side eye, especially like in a clinical setting? would get flagged as being, um, you know, other or wrong. Um, so there was that sense of like, like going inward and figuring out where I feel embodied and how I feel embodied in, in the way I use my voice, especially in the like political sense of having a voice. Like we all have a voice. Um, and we have a manner of speech, but, um, there's all these different valences, like, um, our internal voice is like one valence and like, say, if we were kind of explaining the sort of landscape of that internal voice, to like a clinician, like it, w- it might become fraught. That was my experience that I was thinking the wrong way or or talking to myself in a, a negative way, negative self-talk. Um and so, you know, that felt fraught and kind of like there was like danger within. And then there's like so that's a voice that's not actually voiced most of the time. It's just felt and then there's this other valence of like something very abstract like that I kind of I kind of heard about a lot like in um, working in disability and writing about disability is there's this abstract political voice like giving voice to the voiceless like that voice doesn't belong to any person particular person and it's not exactly a voice. It's not connected to speech, but it's definitely an extension of a person. And so finding the bounds of a voice, um, whether that means something abstract about your political life and your political, um, you know, vitality, um, and then also You know, just the manner of speech that gets politicized. Um, So that was the whole spirit behind the, the zine. And there is a lot of different processes. It's also like process oriented too, because I did have so much experience finding my voice through automatic drawing, through a rasher, um, so there's some of those poems in there. Um, there's some um, text that was... So for the erasure poem, I kind of like erased my diagnosis in the DSM. And then um, there's also another kind of different Arasher, uh poem, a different process, where I selected a body of text from the yellow wallpaper and kind of like papered over it with yellow tape and i think i'm just a process oriented kind of poet and i also think that um you know the text that we um that we live with in our lives this like kind of frozen language um of course, like in the sort of, in promoting literacy, a lot of that language gives us insights, gives us emotional experiences, gives us new words, new language, which, which we can build ourselves. And then, um, so I kind of wanted that to be also included as like an extension of a voice is like the dialectic that happens between a person and a text. Um, and that's another voice that isn't particularly voiced. So it's got a lot of, um, sort of valences in there and I just hope I produce something that's also kind of ecstatic and emotional and, sort of kind of abandoning a lot of these notions after you know picking them up and considering them
0: i always find your poems are very they're so resonant they always like really strike a chord at least when i read them you know it's like uh you're very good at saying a lot with not a lot of words like you said you know it's like really like this little kind of gem
1: i think yeah the haiku practice has been really good for that like so yeah that's why you know of course it's i keep it in my life because it's you know i i'm a hobbyist and i so enjoy it but i do think that like getting to the heart of things it that's the kind of poetry i think that i like to write i love to read like almost like every kind of poetry um but you know (laughs) For my own they they tend to be short and they tend to be um, kind of a little punchy and um for this text in particular i <laughs> i overused um like explanation excl- sorry exclamation points um, I use them a lot because um I don't know. That's always something that kind of comes around in the poetry world. It's like um, I read this book that I really liked um, by Chuang Tran called The Book of the Other and um, he just used like hundreds of periods, like periods like in the middle of a sentence um, and it just felt like the commitment to that kind of punctuation, like that one sort of character, like it added so much. And um, it, yeah, I loved that as a through line. So for myself, I chose the exclamation point because I felt like it matched like the punchiness of um, the way I tend to write poetry. And I also heard... (laughs) This story, when I was studying journalism, I went to University of Florida for journalism. Uh, It was a very like so-so program, no offense to the University of Florida, but it was taught by like older white men whose brand of journalism was already dead. And that's what we were learning. We were learning this kind of dead art. Um, We could have been learning about like, you know, what Twitter was going to be doing for journalism because that had just been like invented when I was in school. So there was a lot of currency that I felt like wasn't reflected in that program. Institutions tend to move pretty slowly, unfortunately. So but I did remember one thing one of these professors said to me which was, you should never use exclamation points. Um, That, I don't know, I guess he found them tawdry. He said that his rule of thumb is like, you only get three exclamation points in your life. And then once you use them all, you die. (laughs) Um, So I used a ton of exclamation points. Um, You know, just... (laughs) But those were the people kind of in my mind, like Trong Train's book um, and just like unfettered use of periods like that felt like just such a it just felt like such a fuck you. to like academia, (laughs) like like and and the shoulds, like how one should write or should express themselves like I really wanted that to be a part of this text like that. um, Yeah that there's a sense of like, fuck it, you know, in the, at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I love saying fuck you, especially to academia right now. Like just as I was explaining to you before we started recording. It's like, uh, yeah, because I've also seen like, you know, they, they want you to write a specific way and like the way I like to write, I like to be very free associative and let like one idea kind of go into another idea and into another idea, you know, they want you to structure your paper where it's like, you give the, what you're going to do, the premise up front and, you know, in the first paragraph and then you have your different sections and then you've addressed all the sections already in the first paragraph, you know, so that you can go through them point by point whatever. And I just, I don't think that way. I don't think thinking that way is useful. I don't like to write that way. To me, that's like, yeah, that's how you write in school. You know, I haven't been in school in a long time, you know what I mean? (laughs) It's Like now I get to write however I want um so yeah like I said like anytime someone asks me now like oh we write piece for this journal or this book it's like is it an academic book yes no thank you (laughs) because I just want to yeah say what I have to say however I want to say it however it comes out I let my unconscious do the work lead the way
1: yeah honestly I feel like I'm I'm kind of similar and the I feel like that's where all the resonance is. Like, that's sort of this unbridling, you know? Like, that's how you get to the resonance stuff. Like, um, that's how you say things that people are thinking, but they're not saying. And that's what feels so resonant and cathartic for people. So I feel like, like I said, process. Like, I'm process-oriented. The process is reflected in the text it's not sort of esoteric and like you know there's no trick to it um i like to let people in um and someone told me also some man uh told me that i i tend to write exactly how i would speak it and i'm just like is that a problem (laughs) <laughs> like, yeah
0: great. I love when you hear someone's voice when they're when you're reading the writing,
1: yeah, and it's been it's been hard to like cultivate a voice, kind of guard against a lot of these sort of outside you know appraisals <laughs> and um and I feel like there's just something special to every particular voice um you know I'm. I would like to go to school to be a a speech pathologist, but um, that sounds, I don't know, pathology. It sounds like, you know, scary, problematic, but I'm going into it because I like people's voices. I'm not trying to fix it. It's more like I'm trying to hear it and understand it. I'm particularly interested in, um, people who are non-verbal, but yet they have a voice. They make their voice known. They make their opinions known. Um, There's something that is not spoken, but it is a voicing of their desires. And so, yeah, like I said, there's all these facets to having a voice. And I feel like it's almost like an iceberg situation where the tip is just what's spoken and everything else is just as real. Um, But maybe a little bit harder to access, maybe um, a little bit harder to understand, but um, it's something that is important to me and I think can be cultivated as we grow. Like that's, I'm glad that this book like spans like, kind of a little bit of my adolescence and into my twenties and um, I'm 33 now when it was published, but it spans a long time. And I can like look back and see how my voice, um, you know, became embodied, became, uh, and how the voice that I've cultivated it's not that like I cultivated a voice. It's more like I came into communion with my own voice or I came into harmony with my own voice. Um, but yeah, it was hard, essentially just guarding against other people's appraisals of, you know, what should be voiced and how.
0: Yeah. And that's what's so frustrating about society. I mean, there's so many things, but this like internalization Like you talked about of like policing ourselves, you know, it's like uh, society projects all these shoulds, how we're supposed to be onto us. And then you have, of course, these very loud, like white cis hetero men who like regurgitate that at us. And these like authority figure doctors that are usually also historically white cis hetero men (laughs) to old ones also telling us labeling us you know this is how you are and because the whole society is kind of set up the same way that their minds are they just point to that as like you know, that's correct. Cause see, that's how it is. But it's like, but you guys set it up this way. <laughs> and then you constantly like point at us as they were hysterical, you know, point out these things like pressured speech. Oh, I know that you're in this episode now because of the way your speech is usually it's something that we're saying something that they don't want to hear, you know, and I love that you, uh, that you took that phrase. It's a great title for a book, regardless of where it came from it's just a great title for a book but then you took that phrase and like kind of reclaimed it and like yeah turned it around and made it part of your story
1: yeah thank you um it's and it's it's also a big fuck you to that dude who like said that to me that like and and I don't know I've been thinking about this this phrase for a long time it's just been in my head like I I was looking at other sort of, um, you know, other women I I identify as gender fluid, I non-binary trans, but I, there's a poem in here and the line is the older, deeper part of me is made of women and just, um, yeah, just so many like older, deeper experiences and also, um, coming from a family of mostly women, um, but yeah my gender is is much more fluid than than just that and um i was uh thinking too, um l- i was looking into uh other women who had a bipolar diagnosis and i looked into uh Britney Spears and Nina Simone and i found it striking that they were both singers and both like amazing singers People might not say Britney is an amazing singer, but she's a hell of a performer. And I feel like voice um, can be a performance. Like in everyday life, your voice can be a performance. At least that's what it sometimes felt like to me when I was like constantly policing myself and constantly trying to appear normal by not talking weird. Uh, That's, that's been a constant in my life, like from when I was a kid and had a speech impediment to when I was navigating that bipolar diagnosis. And now, like, when I, you know, geek out about something and I talk effusively about a special interest, I try to, you know, temper that because it's like, It's there's just this story throughout my whole life, this through line of wanting to sound a certain way. Um, But I thought it was I thought it was kind of beautiful that like um, and I'm a musician too. this sense of like being able to. I think that one shouldn't have to temper themselves, but we all do. Um, I wish there was more compassion and, but there's a big part of this book is like musicality because of what the doors musicality opens for unfettered expression. Like, I think Nina Simone, her voice, I think was really, I watched the documentary on her. Her voice was really bulldozed by the people around her who are like work, 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 produce, 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 like make us money. But then we know this other aspect of our voice that is very controlled and is very powerful. And so that's, again, it speaks to like the multifaceted nature of a voice. And, you know, I've thought like in my own like little psycholinguistical way that, I don't know, maybe people who experience this pressured speech phenomenon maybe related to bipolar, maybe not related to bipolar, like maybe they have a better sense of the musicality of the world, you know, like that they can dip into certain valences and, and to certain timbers. Um, And yeah, I mean, look at, you know, I feel like Britney basically freed herself by putting, by being on social media and talking the way she did. Like people were like, oh, she seems funny. She seems out of it. You know, um, something's wrong here. And then that generated literally a political voice. But I think that it was just her talking to an audience. And there was, and that power was translated into some action. And so, again, it's just like, trying to know the bounds but also to to break through. Um I think that's the sort of that was the arc of my story, you know, and I think that that's um something to celebrate that you know, it's I could say like <laughs> I still sometimes say it's like I wish I never like experienced kind of this trauma in the first place. I was um forcibly um, admitted, um, like 5150, this, all this like kind of academic drama, all this like, um, intimate partner violence. Like I wish part of me wishes that had never happened, but then there's also this other part of me that's like, well, like, look what you've created. Like, the things I'm able to express now feel potent because of those experiences. Yeah, it's tough, though. That's, yeah, that's probably the subject of, like, another book. Like, the sort of, certainly, um... Trauma, I believe, is also multifaceted and kind of, I, I've spoke about it in my life as, like, it's almost this, like, obscuring force. It's like I'm trying to access something and something seems to be in the way. Like, I'm trying to, to yeah, it, I guess like it, parts of my life seem inaccessible because there's a smoky cloud of, like, dissociation and, like coping mechanisms, just like, preventing me from cutting to the heart of that. So I'm I'm sure everyone can relate to that. Um, we all have our, our story. But it's just something that I'm trying to, I guess, just like untangle, there's a tangledness to it still. Whereas this one small aspect of my life, this like, like, very particular um, phenomenon, voicing, the act of voicing. Like, I feel like for this book, I've been able to um, access it and pick it up and consider it. And like, it felt like, it's a short, I'm I'm sure I could have written, like, <laughs> I could have written like an academic paper on it, but this feels much more true to how it was, like how it was perceived and embodied rather than just like you know untangled pulled apart and considered
0: yeah exactly because when you write a more academic paper you're always separating yourself from it like writing about it I found a lot of people that I knew like there's like a whole movement of people that like are writing about uh, the esoteric and magical practices as like a section of like religion. And even like Satanism is like written about like in like religious studies now, you know? And a lot of people that I know that are academics that are writing about these things, you know, and now it's turned into kind of this like anthropological study where they're like looking at it, looking how it developed and everything. And it kind of separates them, separates you or or the author from it. And you're like now looking at something like through a microscope, whereas like they used to be practitioners, you know, that were actually doing it and and keep seeing the separations. But I like the, I like being in the process too when I do my work and Uh, I like things where you can see the process unfolding rather than someone describing the process. To me, it's like much more, yeah, it's just much more visceral and really hits home more when you're like in the process, you know, rather than having someone tell you what the process was like.
1: Right. Right. And I, I, I do feel like, I, 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 admire like practitioners and it's something that like I want to do like I want to be you know um, like in speech pathology it sounds very clinical but um, it's it's not like being a speech you could be a speech pathologist and do like assessments of people um, or you could be a, a speech therapist and mm-hmm. do the sort of one-on-one um, practice that's that's what I had to help me with my speech impediment. And I feel like in almost every aspect of my career, another <laughs> multifaceted like thing, um, I've always enjoyed kind of collaborating, co-creating um, and, and working person to person. When I, I mean, I don't talk really much about, like, work in this. That's maybe another book. But, like, yeah, I just feel like being, um in bo- like, feeling the ways in which your labor is an extension of your body and is an extension of your mind. Like, I don't like to be too alienated. Like, I like to feel like... um yeah like what I'm doing in this like work context in this career sense like is is there's a toll on my body. there's a toll on my mind like I'm aware of that I'm not kind of trying to um wish it away or or skirt it away um I've always been like in fields that were either like manual labor um or um very like, like care work. Um, and so like, yeah, the the mind and body being very with me the whole time and not like kind of put away in a box so it doesn't get in the way of my pr- productivity. It's yeah, it's another thing that, it's kind of just like another thread in my voice is like always wanting to be near the core of my humanity.
0: It's beautifully, but I also love that you blacked out the uh, the DSM diagnosis. That got me thinking that would be so cathartic for me to like go through my DSM and like black it out or cut it up and just like yeah, tear it apart and put it back together, see what I can make it say or what it says.
1: Yeah, I feel like you should do it. <laughs> I, yeah,
0: I might have to yeah. now. <laughs>
1: but it was fun. I I put the um the blacked out. One thing that I wish I did with rendering unconscious and with this book is it would have been nice to like photocopy and include some of the blacked out work. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of just typing up what was left. So, yeah, I don't know. That would have been nice. I never really have, um, like, the access to, like, a a printer, a copier. So it's, I don't know, it's a silly little, like, barrier, but it is a barrier. And um, I also do keep, like, those those copies for me, um, the DSM one is in like a frame and this is what decorates my house. (laughs) Like is all this like blacked out poetry. So again, like I'm near it, I'm living with it. Um, and there's already a, a sort of degree in which like, you know, once you put something down in a book and you call it a work or a poem or, you know, uh, your writing, there's already a degree in which, like, um, it's, like, away from you, like, death of the author, like, which is, um, you know, which I I accept. That's, like, acceptable to me, but it's nice that I'm still near the, like, the sort of catharsis of the work is, like, all around me. And like this is something that people can read and take what they want out of it, um, and I don't know. Maybe it's helpful that it looks more like quote unquote like traditional poetry with like a title and like you know the you know all the familiar like ornamentation of a poem. I don't know. Would you like to read
0: some of the poems for us?
1: Yeah, I can read the um the DSM 1. This one was um substance-induced psychosis. And that was the that was the diagnosis in the DSM. And all right. So this one's called subido forte. There's a lot of musical cues in this, but a subito forte in, like, a score means, like, a sudden loudness, which, um, that was just my experience of psychosis. It was, like, I am suddenly loud with thoughts and associations and feelings. Um, anyway, so it's called subito forte. They have explained with an intoxication common persons required to produce heavy, prolonged use, and persecutory delusions following the code further withdrawal, current severity. There is evidence from history, both one and two, during or soon, such evidence could sufficiently warrant attention. There is an order present, record disorder, before disorder, there is no use. It's amazing. Yeah, I feel like the they is like just sort of those like clinicians like yeah, they explain with an intoxication like kind of high on their own like, I don't know. Yeah, (laughs) Their position, they're they're in a high up position and it's like yeah, common persons required to produce, that's like basically the story of humanity right like so yeah um let's see and I can read to you um I'll read to you the other a rasher one um yeah this is from the yellow wallpaper love love that short story very creepy even today um it's called Dolce, which means it's Italian for sweet. The color is strangely lurid. There are such pretty rooms to live in. Everlastingness, where the sun is just so sister. Mother a kindly wink, so I try. Ordinary people, intense talk of things. Not haunted, perhaps romantic. Perhaps she did not know I was in the room. Beautiful. And that's kind of like, if you ever have that experience of like, you feel like you're saying what you mean, you feel like you're telling somebody what they need to know, but they're not seeing you or they're not listening to you. Um, That's kind of another phenomenon of voice is like, um, you, you can voice yourself, but sometimes you're not perceived even when you are voicing yourself. Mm. That's kind of sad.
0: That's my entire relationship with my mother. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> it's like, how about if I explain it this way? How about if I explain it this way? How about if I explain it this way? And it's just like, it never lands. It doesn't matter which kind of angle I go.
1: Never lands. Yeah, yeah, there's, but yeah, I don't know, I feel like it's, Um. I, I don't know, I particularly like the line, she did not know I was in the room, perhaps she did not know I was in the room, which is like, I don't know, there's a sort of spookiness, like being a ghost, it is a ghost, well, it is a, a spooky story, the yellow wallpaper, after all. Um, I can do one more. Sure. Okay. Um, it's just gonna be hard to choose. I can, all right, I'll read, I can read you the oldest one. This one I wrote, um, in like poetry 101, like my sophomore year of college. So I guess the year is like 2010, 2011. A lot of the titles are either they're a sort of musical term or they're kind of like some clinical term um, about the ma- about the manner of speech. There's echolalia, like the um, sort of like constant repetition, which I think is a very musical way to speak. Um, and then there's um, schizophrenia, like word salad, nonsense talk, um, pressured speech, um, tacit, which is like a musical term, but um, it, it also has like, uh, that's like a word that's also peopled. Like, Um, people tacitly sort of agreeing. Um, So yeah, an aspect of, that's an example of like where people are voicing and not voicing. But so I'll read you the oldest one. It's called Echolalia. Um, That's a sort of phenomenon of speech that I do feel kind of close to. Like when I to quote, try to sound like a normal person. What has helped me in achieving that is just repeating something I've already heard exactly the way I heard it. And so there's like a rehearsed, there's a rehearsal element. But this poem is just about like, repeating on every line. um, The word the echolalia. The stamp in the wrong denomination, the letter you never got from your sister, the license plate number D739RX, the dust kicked up when your sister drove to Texas, the faulty X-ray machine that didn't catch, the dark spot on your grandfather's lung, the bag covering, the bottle of fernet in your father's pocket, the plate of spaghetti your father dropped on, the new carpet that led to the scar from the ashtray your mother meant to throw at the wall. maybe done content warning for that one domestic violence but yeah that's that's an old one that's my old license plate it's not really autobiographical but um yeah i just wanted to see what it would be like to repeat the as the first word on every line and then get increasingly like, um, it get, yeah, getting increasingly um, brought.
0: Yeah, that really p- paints a picture, like brings you into the scene, you know.
1: Yeah, and there's a sense, too, of like, and I'll just say for me, like this, that's not reflective of like my particular trauma, but there is a sense with my trauma where there is a repetition sort of present. Like it's either coming back and like popping up in places, and I'm like reliving it, which is why, you know, I should have given a content warning. But, um, you know, because of, like, the triggering aspect of it. But then through my particular trauma, um, I feel like I also repeated it. I also played it out a lot, Um, which I've read isn't, like, unusual. Like, uh, I think I read in The Body Keeps a Score that kind of repeating it, like, that's that's like how one uses the part of the brain that feels most um, vital, that feels the most real. Um, it's just like kind of living in that like little trauma groove. And um, so, yeah, I guess like I just wanted to find a way to like honor that part of my story that like we do live... Through repetition, um, in life is often, especially you know <laughs> the way life is now. Like when we're we're so there's so much pressure around like habits and like kind of norm, routinizing and normalizing one's daily living. Like that's, I guess like one of the hallmarks of a quote-unquote normal life and but it just feels like repetition you know like and there's ways in which we repeat ourselves for meaning to to sort of create the meaning and so for me it's like I know that I have the power to do that for things that are um, mundane and sort of routine and then I have like the power to do that for things that are like deeply scripted like in my psyche like and at the end of the day it's all just my life you know like so yeah I guess like sort of there's a bit of rawness to this and there's kind of poems like that that are a bit like That feel like kind of maybe like scary or tender, but it's all just like my life. You know, it's like me saying like, this is my life. This is how I live. Um, And I don't think that necessarily means that, um, you know, I'm wrong.
0: It's beautifully put too. Was there anything that you
1: wanted to mention that we didn't get to? Um, let me think. Um, well, I'm sure you're linked to it, but you can buy it at Bottle Cap Press. Oh, <laughs> I will say this: this um cover art, it's very clashy, very loud. Um, so actually, there was a a visual component to this piece another reason why i called it a zine is because zines are often you know they're passed out at shows they're often connected to an event and pressured speech was also connected to an event and um i didn't get to go to that event because i got covid but there was a group show in philadelphia at practice gallery and um it was a lot of like VR artists, virtual reality artists, and, um, and then me. And like, I, my contribution was the manuscript to pressured speech. Um, and what I did in order to make visual art out of this poetry is I plugged in the poetry into, um, a program where an AI would produce, uh, images. And like, um, so the cover art is based on one of the images that the AI produced. And um, I felt like that was, that was like, that was my way of kind of, of kind of translating pressured speech, the feeling of pressured speech um, from like my brain to a computer, to an artificial intelligence. Um, Artificial intelligence are often, it's like intelligence, right? It's like talked about like it's a brain. And so I'm like, okay, so feeding this brain poetry and requiring it it to produce words or uh, images, meaning, and like, is we're essentially, like, looking at the computer's dream of, like, all these experiences. And I feel like the act of, like, sort of translating kind of speaks to that sort of... Um, there's, like, this fraught in between of, like, voicing, you know, and, like, expressing. So the computer is, like, trying to express itself, trying to express these words... And what it comes out with is something, you know, messy and like, um, and, and particular and like, um, and yeah, I don't know. It just reminded me this like AI program. It's like how often we struggle to express ourselves coherently that like, um, yeah our vo- it's just a reminder that our voices are not coherent but that <laughs> doesn't make them less real and um or less powerful and um so yeah there was this sort of video version of pressured speech i read like some of the poems over the the um animation the computer did and just like looped it so people could like walk around the gallery and experience it they still experienced my like disembodied voice from like afar i was like homesick in covid with covid um and like yeah these images were um it it was just like an exercise in translation like when we translate our ideas into like another form or like another mode of expression, like we get something like kind of unexpected. And that was just like another experiment for this, for this scene. Like there was this experimental sort of like AI component and a uh, visual component, which I can, I can like send you, maybe the link to that if it's still up but it was up at practice gallery in philadelphia from like the beginning of july to the end of july
0: very cool that also reminds me that um, someone recently asked me where the name of the podcast came from rendering unconscious and it was it was an event that i did in new york on automatic poetry like this kind of blackout automatic free associated poetry and you were part of that too yeah yeah that was cool i'm glad i like that the podcast name started with a a poetry event (laughs) that says a lot about it
1: yeah it's true um yeah so that's that's the whole story maybe uh i'm just glad that i got to catch up with you
0: yeah absolutely and anytime you want to come back or you have anything just let me know i'm here this (laughs) is what i do Yes. Yeah. Like,
1: yeah. Um, cool. Well, thank you.
0: All right. And I'm going to order. I know you sent me the link. I'm going to order the the book because I want to read the whole thing.
1: Sounds good. And then I'm going to
0: start cutting up the DSM and I'll show you what happens.
1: Yes, But please. I won't
0: make it a project because then I won't do it. It's just for fun. Yes.
1: Because
0: <laughs> um. we have to see what it says
1: yeah it's got messages for you
0: yeah I think it would be really cathartic yeah. I think like you said I have to do that yeah I also have all my like old testing materials like my Rorschach cards and stuff and I've thought of like collaging on them but then I'm like but I love them as like objects so I don't know but it's like am I ever going to use them am I ever going to give someone a Rorschach again I don't think so you <laughs> know <laughs> yeah. I don't think so but I don't know but maybe I could always I feel like I have to destroy the originals I'm like maybe I could copy them and then just collage on the copies but this isn't the same you kind of have to destroy them
1: there is something really like powerful in destroying something you care about to make something new
0: yeah and especially like that's that's a past life mm-hmm. yeah you know, when am I going to give someone an IQ test you know <laughs> it's like yeah. That's not me. I don't do that, you know. (laughs) All right, Jim. Thank you. Thank you, too. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Germ Lynn. Get their book, Pressured Speech, from Bottlecap Press. Bottlecap.press. And follow them on Instagram at the main vein. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. The main vein is the.mane.vein dot dot at Instagram. You can also follow me on social media rawsin underscore r-a-w-s-i-n underscore at instagram and twitter or on tiktok at dr vanessa sinclair 23 check out my previous interview with germ episode number eight of rendering unconscious podcast Song from the album Coven, curated by Germ and myself. The song is called What and it's by Germ and their band. Enjoy.
1: Edge of my life.